Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Bibles to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. As we're continuing to trek through the gospel of John, not at breakneck speed, but at the speed that God has us going. And um, I do want to begin by telling you somewhat of a sad story. We've been praying for my friend um, Chris Clasby and his wife Julie, and you know that they lost a child um, a few months ago. But Chris, I have permission to share this story, but about four or five years ago, um, Chris came to me with a problem and a conundrum of a friend of his. And so about three or four years ago, let me just tell you the story about Chris's friend. Chris, after college, went off to work at a camp in Mississippi, a Christian camp. And at this Christian camp, he became really good friends with a a young man named Zach. Zach had grown up in his youth group. Zach wanted to go into ministry. Zach ended up working at this Christian camp. And Chris and Zach would spend late nights together talking about the gospel, talking about ministry. And then after college... Zach went on staff at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. If you know anything about Capitol Hill Baptist Church, that's the church where Mark Dever is the pastor. He's the one that puts on the Together for the Gospel conferences that we go to every other year. And so this young man, Zach, was on staff as a pastoral intern at Capitol Hill Baptist Church for about three years. And about three years into his ministry there, his daughter got diagnosed with a chromosome disorder, very similar to what my son Zachary has. A little different, but this made his daughter um, basically nonverbal and a lot of disabilities, and, and he got really angry at God. And so he went on this journey of exploration, and basically, after about a few months, he rejected Jesus Christ and became an atheist. He had to go before his church of about 600 people And he had to stand before them at a members meeting and confess that I am your pastor, one of your pastors, but I'm no longer a Christian. I have denied Christianity. I am now an atheist. And the church had to vote to rescind his membership as a pastor and even as a pastor. And so this really bothered my friend Chris because he called me and said, he told me this whole story. He said, how do you process this? How do you process someone who was called to ministry at a young age, who worked at a Christian camp, who was on staff for three years at a church in, in, in a position of being a pastor and now is an avowed atheist? How do you deal with this? How do you, how do you come to grips with this? Is there a category for this? It really had him puzzled. And as I listened to the podcast where Zach explained his journey out of Christianity and atheism, I pray that this is not the end of the story. I pray that he's a prodigal that God will call home. And here's the hard thing. His wife's still a Christian. 
And so it's a lot of turmoil in his family. And so I pray that the, that the chapter's not closed on Zach's life and that the Lord brings him back to repentance and that through this journey of exploring atheism, he will see how empty and how dead and how lifeless it is and he'll come to faith in Christ. So here's a huge question for you this morning. How do you know you're saved? How do you know you're saved? Or let me ask it a different way, maybe a negative way. What characterizes an unbeliever? What are the marks of a hypocrite or somebody who's playing like they're a Christian? There's an ultimate answer from our passage of Scripture this morning, and it's basically you don't accept the overpowering testimony of Christ. John 1.11 says this, He came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. If you remember from last week where we are in John, he healed a man that had been disabled for 38 years. This man didn't thank Jesus. He went on his merry way. But then the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, were very upset with Jesus because he healed on the Sabbath day. And they claimed, or or they laid this charge against Jesus that you claim to be even equal with God. And if you remember last week, Jesus said, as a matter of fact, I am equal with God. I do have authority to heal on the Sabbath. I'm so equal with God that I'm doing the works of the Father. I have the ability to give spiritual life to dead people, and the Father has given me all authority to judge the living and the dead. That's what we saw last week. But Jesus knows that these Jewish leaders have dead, stony hearts. They're hard-hearted. They don't want to hear. They're wrapped up in tradition. They're wrapped up in legalism. They're wrapped up in this man-made system, and they can't see Christ right in front of them. So Jesus knows this, and he knows that they know the Old Testament. And the Old Testament says if somebody's going to come and make a claim, there has to be the establishment of at least two or three witnesses to establish the validity of that claim. Deuteronomy 19.15. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he's committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three shall a charge be established. That's the Old Testament law, two or three witnesses. Jesus knows this. So like a good lawyer, he's going to enter into the courtroom with these Jewish leaders and he's going to bring forth four witnesses. Four expert witnesses into the courtroom to prove that he indeed is the Son of God, that he has the authority to be equal with God. And here's the sad thing about it. These Jewish leaders are going to be blinded. They're going to be hardened. They're going to be rebellious. Here's the thing. They think they're religious. They think they're saved. They think they've got it all figured out, but yet they're lost. So before we answer the question of how do you know you're truly saved or what characterizes the life of an unbeliever, let's just first look at these four expert witnesses that Jesus brings in. So here's witness number one into the courtroom. Jesus brings witness number one. Witness number one is John the Baptist. Let's pick up in chapter 5, verse 31 through 35 and see this unfold. Jesus says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, that's John the Baptist, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Witness number one, John the Baptist came. 
John the Baptist was the prophet. John the Baptist was the voice in the wilderness. He was the burning light. You guys came and investigated him. He's witness number one, John the Baptist. Here's witness number two Jesus brings into the courtroom. The actual works of Christ himself. Look at verse 36. Here's witness number two. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father sent me. So John the Baptist is good enough, but let me give you a greater witness. The greater witness is the, the acts I'm doing myself. I'm doing miracles. I'm, I'm doing healings. I'm doing exorcisms. I'm doing all of these great works. That should be enough witness. That should be enough testimony that I indeed am equal with God. But if that's not enough... Let me bring the third witness into the courtroom. So here's the third witness, the voice of the Father. Look at verse 37. And the Father who has sent me himself, borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he sent. The Father's voice. Now, where did they hear the Father's voice? most probably at Jesus' baptism. You remember when Jesus was baptized? There was the voice that came from heaven, Matthew 3, 17, and behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. They saw Jesus in the flesh getting baptized by John the Baptist and they heard the voice from heaven calling down to Jesus saying, this is my beloved son and they're still not believing it. As a matter of fact, notice what it says there in verse 37. It says, his voice you've never heard. Never heard it. In the Greek tense, that really is a prolonged, stubborn refusal to hear God's voice. But then there's witness number four. If you don't believe John the Baptist, if you don't believe my works, if you don't believe the voice of the Father, let me give you a, 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 a per- permanent Uh, um, unquestionable witness. Here's the fourth witness. The Old Testament scriptures themselves. Look at verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I've come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There's one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you've set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? We're going to spend a lot of time next week on that one passage. You diligently search the scriptures in order to find eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me. Here's the point. The entire Old Testament's about Jesus. We're going to look at that next week. I felt like we need to spend a whole other week on that topic. But here's the issue. These Jewish leaders are doing the right thing. They're reading their Bibles. They're studying their Bibles. They're they're trying to find eternal life. They just don't realize that everything points to Jesus. All the Old Testament prophecies point to Jesus. As a matter of fact, he says, listen, your hero, Moses, is the one that's going to condemn you. 
Your hero, Moses, the guy that you look up to, the guy that wrote the law, the guy that came from Mount Sinai, the one who's the greatest hero in the Old Testament, he is condemning you. He's accusing you because he wrote of me and you're not believing. If you don't believe Moses, you're not going to believe me because Moses was very clear that he was talking about me. Moses predicted there would be a day when an ultimate prophet would arise. In in Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your brothers. It's to him you shall listen. There's going to be a prophet that's going to raise. You need to listen to him. Deuteronomy 18.18, just a few verses down. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Jesus Christ is none other than this prophet that Moses predicts is going to come. Now, how do I know that? Well, you have to go to Acts chapter 3 and read Peter's sermon. Peter explains that Moses was talking about Jesus. So we're going to talk a little bit about that next week, about how Jesus is the, the center of the entire Bible. But here's the astonishing thing about this. These Jewish leaders with four overwhelming, overpowering uh, evidence staring them right in the eyes are refusing to believe it. How can you argue with John the Baptist? How can you argue with the miracles Jesus is doing? How can you argue with the voice coming from heaven? How can you argue with the Old Testament scriptures prophesying about Jesus? I mean, it's airtight, right? Undeniable. Case closed. These four witnesses should have been enough. But I want to draw your attention to their response. Look at verse 37. His voice you've never heard. Verse 38 You do not believe the one whom he has sent. Verse 40, you refuse to come to me that you may have eternal life. Verse 43, you do not receive me. Verse 47, how will you believe my words? It's an outright refusal to come to Christ as Savior and Lord in the face of overwhelming evidence. Now, Jesus was addressing a historical issue that's unrepeatable, okay? None of us here ever saw John the Baptist, so none of us here ever saw Jesus getting baptized and heard the voice from heaven. None of us here saw Jesus performing his works. The only thing that we have are the scriptures themselves. But what this illustrates for us with these Jewish leaders, I think, is an abiding principle that characterizes those who think they're religious those who think they're saved, those who think they're good with God but are not. They're false converts. They're unbelievers. They're not truly saved. Go back to verse 24. We looked at this last week. What does verse 24 say? It's the key to the entire chapter 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. So here's what I want us to do this morning. I want us to explore three characteristics of those who may think they're okay with God, but who are in fact unbelievers. Three characteristics of those who think you're okay. I'm okay with God. I'm pretty religious, but in fact you're not. Here's number one. The number one characteristic. You may read the Bible, but God's word does not dwell in you. Let me explain this. Look at verses 37 and 38. 
And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me, his voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen. Look at verse 38. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he sent. Present tense. You do not have his word continuously, ongoingly, as a lifestyle abiding in you. You don't have his word living in you. Now, when you have a sickness, when you have an illness, what do you normally do if you're a normal person? Some of you just wait forever before you go to the doctor. If you're a normal person, what do you do? You go to the doctor. And what does the doctor do? The doctor runs a bunch of tests to diagnose the problem, right? He does a diagnosis. Okay, we have a doctor here this morning. We have a doctor in the house. Okay, it's not Dr. Soper. I don't know if he's here. We don't have a doctor. That's not the doctor we're talking about. This is the doctor. The scripture is the doctor, and the scripture is going to do some diagnostic work this morning. As a matter of fact, the Bible calls this a a sword, or to put it more in doctor terms, let's just call this a surgeon's scalpel. What does a surgeon's scalpel do? It probes, it penetrates, it cuts away to make you better. Hebrews chapter 4, 12 through 13 says this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give an account. So the scripture does a diagnostic work of, of digging deep into our hearts. So let's ask, like a good doctor, some diagnostic questions to help you understand your spiritual condition this morning. Let's just ask some questions. Does the word of God take root in your life? Is God's word abiding in you? Are you not just reading the Bible? Anybody can read the Bible, but is the Bible taking root into your heart? Is it changing the way you think? Is it changing the way you live? Are you living under its authority? Is it, as Jesus says here, is it continually abiding in you? Is it transforming you? Joshua 1.8 says this, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Do you meditate on the scriptures day and night? Do you let it sink down deep into your heart, and do you obey all of it? Does the scripture take root in your heart? Is it abiding in you? Are you meditating on it? Are you living under its authority? Are you living it out in practical ways in your life? Psalm 1, 1 through 2. <clears throat> Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of God, and on his law he meditates day and night. Do you delight in God's word? Are you excited about God's word? Do you, do you not just read it, but do you meditate upon it? Do you memorize it? Do you let it sink deep into your heart? Or, or does it transform the way that you live? Colossians 3.16 says this, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual psalms with thankfulness in your hearts to God. <coughs> Excuse me. So Jesus says, your word is not abi- or my word is not abiding in you. Here in Colossians it says, 
let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That means abundantly. That means overflowing you. Is God's word taking root? Not is, hey, I read two verses today and that was cool. Is it abiding? Is it living? Is it taking up residence in you so much so that it transforms everything that you do? That's a mark of a true believer. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So the Bible helps transform your mind. So let me give a warning this morning, especially to our children and youth who grow up in this church. I know for a fact that almost all the children and youth that grow up in this church, you know your Bible. You stood up here a few weeks ago and you did the hand signals to the Ten Commandments. You know your Ten Commandments. You know the books of the Bible. You're in Team Kid. You're in Youth Group. You're in Club 45. You're in Vacation Bible School. Everybody around here reads their Bibles, okay? Children, you can read your Bibles and know Bible verses and know what the Bible says and still not be saved. There's a danger. There's a danger in knowing a lot of facts about the Bible but not actually trusting Christ for salvation. Listen to what Jesus says in John 8, 31-32. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide, there's a word again, if you abide in my word, you're what? You are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. How do you know you're truly a Christian? His word abides in you, and you abide in his word. You listen to Jesus. You hear his voice in the scriptures. You follow him. You, you trust him. You love him. And this Bible takes up residence in your heart. Listen to a warning from 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, 4-5. through five. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word... In him, truly, the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. You may be offended by this question, but are you a liar? I'm not asking the question. The Bible's asking the question. What's a liar? A liar is someone who says, I know God. I know Jesus. I know the books of the Bible. I know all these things. But what does the scripture say? You do not obey the Bible. You do not keep his commandments. You do not live in the authority of his word. Most of you have probably seen the movie God's Not Dead. The newsboys do the music for God's Not Dead. Now, most of you, probably everybody knows who the newsboys are, right? Okay, I went to a lot of newsboys concerts when I was a youth pastor, but I don't know if you know this about the newsboys. The founder of the newsboys actually came out years later as an atheist, okay? So in the early <clears throat> 90s, late 80s, when Newsboys was forming, George Perdiccas was the one who helped found the Newsboys in Australia. And he started playing and, and, all the, and, and you know, going on tour, and, and they went on tour with Whiteheart, if you remember Whiteheart back in the day. Um, yeah, White, those of you are like, who's Whiteheart? Go back and listen to some classic Whiteheart from the early 90s. Um, just good stuff from the early 90s. Um, but listen to what he had to say. He had a problem with holiness, quote, in his own words. And he wrote an article in Pathios.com. He said, I always felt uncomfortable with the strict rules imposed by Christianity. All I wanted to do was create and play rock and roll. So he left the band. 
And the issue for him in leaving the band was he didn't want to obey what the Bible said about holiness. And eventually he explored astronomy and other things, and, and in the late 90s he became an avowed atheist. And so it's just amazing to me that these people that are forming Christian bands, going to Christian schools, even being pastors, who then come out later and say, that was all a sham, I'm an atheist now. And a lot of times it's because they did not want the word of God to influence or direct or guide their life. So let me just say this positively, and then let me say it negatively. Positively. One of the key distinguishing marks of a true believer is this. God's word abides in you so that your entire life is shaped by the scriptures. Positively. That's one of the key characteristics of a believer. Negatively. Let's say it negatively. One of the key distinguishing marks of an unbeliever of someone who may be faking it, of someone who's a hypocrite, is that you may read the Bible, but the Bible is not taking root in your life. It's not shaping how you live, and you could care less about what the Bible says. You may give lip service to it, but you don't live it out in all aspects of your life. Okay, so that's number one. Let's look at number two. You may know about God, but his love does not abide in you. Look at verse 42. What does Jesus say? But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. You don't have God's love in you. Now earlier he said you don't have God's word in you. Now he says you don't have God's love in you. You don't have God's word in you. You don't have God's love in you. Again, it's in the present tense. You see, there's a huge difference in knowing about God and then actually loving God. What's the greatest commandment? What did Jesus say in Mark chapter 12, 28 through 30? One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked him which commandment is the most important of all. And Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. So, diagnostic question. Are you loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Not just giving lip service, not just talking about it. Do you actually love God? Deep down in your soul. Philippians 3.8, listen to what Paul says. Indeed, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ. Key question. How do you show God you love him? Answer, right? Put a bumper sticker on the back of your car, right? Crank Caleb up really loud so that everybody knows. How do you show God you love him? Let's let the Bible answer that question for us. 1 John 5, 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Now, let me just be very careful here to make sure you do not misunderstand me. I'm talking here about how do you know you're saved, not how do you get saved. How do you get saved? 
You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You are saved by grace, by believing in Jesus Christ. It's not by works. You are saved by grace, by grace, by grace, okay? That's how you are saved. But once you are saved, how do you prove out your salvation? How do you demonstrate that you are are saved? What's the fruit? What's the evidence? What's the outcome of that? It's a life of loving obedience to Jesus. Now, why do I use the word loving obedience? Well, Jesus tells us in John 14, 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So do you consistently, as a lifestyle, show your love for Jesus through obedience? Not just talking about it. Not just thinking about it, but actually obedience. And it goes back to what? Obedience to his word, to his scripture. Are you living a life of obedience? Anybody can say they're a Christian. Anybody can show up on Sunday morning and act like a Christian. Are you loving Jesus and abiding in his word the rest of the week? Our friend Artaxerdia, who's preached here, was asked one time, how do you know if a person's saved or not? His answer is, well, we can't see into people's hearts, but there's two telltale signs that may help us. Time and the devil. And, and, and what do you mean by time and the devil? His answer was, given enough time, you may see a person, the totality of their life, and see if it proves out. The devil, how do they respond to temptation and are they repentant? Not perfection, because all of us are going to be tempted All of us are going to fall, but the question is, over the period of your life, is there evidence? And then when you are tempted by the devil and you do sin, is there repentance? If there's no repentance and there's no progression, it may be a telltale sign that you're not truly saved. Do you know the distance between heaven and hell? Anybody know the distance between heaven and hell? Some of you are like, okay, calculator, I don't know. Does the Bible tell? What's the distance between heaven and hell? Let me tell you, it's 16 inches. It's from here to here. It's from your head to your heart. There's a lot of people walking around that have head knowledge of who Jesus is, but they're not going to heaven. It's got to go from your head to your heart to where you love Christ, you've given him everything, you've surrendered your life to him, you've trusted him for everything, and then you have the assurance of heaven. My fear is there's so many people that walk around that know who God is, they know who Jesus is, they know the lingo, they know the words. These these Pharisees are searching the scriptures. They know all the answers, but yet they're not coming to Christ. So let me say it positively and let me say it negatively for the second one. Positively. One of the key distinguishing marks of a true believer is that you show God how much you love him by consistent obedience to his word. Negatively, one of the key distinguishing marks of an unbeliever Or a false comfort is that you give lip service to loving God, but there's no consistent fruit of obedience to his word. So number one, the the word of God does not abide in you. Number two, the, the love of God does not abide in you. Here's the third thing that Jesus says. You may act religious, but you seek self glory. Look at verse 44. What does he say to these guys? How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. 
I want to be religious. I want to appear good to my friends. I want to appear like I've got it all together. You're seeking self-glory. Later on in John chapter 12, verse 43, Jesus says about these same people probably, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. What's the chief end of man? You should know it by now. The chief end of man is to what? Glorify God and enjoy him forever. What's the chief mantra of our culture? What's the culture say? The chief end of man, the ultimate purpose of man is to what? It's to glorify self and to enjoy this life in its temporary pleasures as much as I can get out of it. That's what this world says. Whereas Christianity says, no, the chief end of man is to glorify God, not self, and to enjoy him forever, not to enjoy the the fleeting pleasures of this life. But see, here's the issue. These people were seeking the glory of self. You know, the Bible calls that selfish ambition. It's what can I make of myself? How can I promote myself? How can everything be about me? Selfish ambition. Listen to Philippians 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Okay, so let's ask some diagnostic questions here. Are you selfish? Are you conceited? Are you always thinking of yourself, putting yourself above others? Are you vain? Are you insecure that if other people are getting advanced, it's going to crush you? Are you you selfishly absorbed in making everything about yourself? Has has self-promotion and self-love and self-glory become an idol deep into your heart? Listen to what James says about self-glory or selfish ambition. James 3, 14-16. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. It's demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. What were these men seeking? It tells us very clearly. Verse 44, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from God? They're wanting to glorify each other, seeking glory, self-glory, selfish ambition, as opposed to seeking the glory of God. So let me state this positively and negatively again for this one. Positively, one of the key distinguishing marks of a true believer is that you humbly seek the glory of God instead of proudly seeking the glory of yourself. Negatively, One of the key distinguishing marks of an unbeliever or a false convert is that you have made selfish ambition a pride and an idol. So think about these descriptions that Jesus is giving to these people. You don't have, first of all, they didn't even believe the four witnesses. You're not believing John the Baptist. You're not believing my works. You're not believing the voice from heaven. You're not believing the scriptures. But by the way, you, number one, you don't have the word of God abiding in you. Number two, you don't have the love of God abiding in you. And number three, you have only self-glory and self-love abiding in you. So really everything's all about yourself, not the glory of God. And what happens when you do that? What is Jesus saying here? When you do that, you reject Jesus. You don't receive Jesus. You don't come to Jesus. You don't receive him. You don't believe him. You refuse to come to him. 
So what is your spiritual condition? Is it like these Jewish leaders? And so let me just say something. It is not an intellectual issue. It's a spiritual issue. It's not how much Bible knowledge you have. It's the condition of your heart. It's not whether you go to church. It's not whether you consider yourself to be a good person or that maybe you're spiritually minded. And it's not even if you claim to be a Christian. Many people can say with their mouth that they're Christians. The real issue is this. Is there demonstrable evidence and proof in your life that you are obeying God's word, that you're loving the Father, and that you're glorifying him? The love of God's abiding in you, the word of God's abiding in you, and you seek the glory of God. Now, I can't look into your heart this morning and pronounce you saved. I can't do it. Only God sovereignly makes you a Christian. I I can't look into your heart, but I I, I hope this is what happens. I hope his word has come like a sharp scalpel from a skillful surgeon and come and confronted you deep into your idolatry and have plunged deep into your heart and has exposed some things. And it could be that you're wounded this morning by the scalpel of God's word. And let me say, that's a good thing. That's a very good thing. Better to be wounded by the sharp knife of the scriptures and leave this place healed than to continue to run from God's word and to avoid Jesus and to not come to Jesus and leave out his place, maybe feeling good about yourself, but headed to hell. So Jesus doesn't play games. Maybe you're playing a game this morning. Maybe some of you have come into this church year after year, week after week. You put on a good front. Again, I, don't, I can't look into your heart to know who you are and what, you, what your heart is, but I can say this. Jesus knows, and you can't fool him. And so as you've come into a corporate worship service under the preaching of the word, now's the time to make it right with God. And so I'm going to ask us just to bow our heads this morning, and I want us just to, to let the Word of God continue to do that, that cutting, that diagnosis, that, that searching into your heart this morning. So with our, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, as we think about the spiritual condition of these Jewish leaders, the most important thing is what's your spiritual condition? Where are you this morning? Does the word of God abide in you? Does the love of God abide in you? And do you seek the glory of God instead of your own glory? I can't answer these questions for you. Only the word of God and the Holy Spirit can. So would you spend some time in the quietness of this moment asking the Lord to search your heart and would you come face to face with and let it do its surgical work on you this morning that you might be changed and renewed and healed and forgiven. We have been exposed to your word. And for some of us, it may have cut deep into the soul. Lord, I pray that we would all receive the work that you have for us in our hearts today. Lord, there may be some in this room that are pretenders, some that may just read their Bibles, know facts, know who God is, but in their heart of hearts they know that they are not truly a believer because they have not 
repented. They've not confessed sin. And they've not trusted you alone. And Lord, I pray that today would be their day of salvation. They would surrender to you. Lord, for the rest of us that are believers, sometimes it's a good diagnostic test for us to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith and and we come away encouraged knowing that you have given us faith and that you have saved us and that we're not perfect but Lord uh, we we are consistent and that's what we're and the only way we're we're consistent is because your grace and your Holy Spirit in us and so uh, thank you for evidences of grace and for growth Lord thank you for the power of the convicting word of God and the power of the convicting work of the Holy Spirit I trust that both of those have gone out in power today, the Word and Spirit, and that your Word does not return void and your Holy Spirit accomplishes what He desires to accomplish. And so, Lord, would lives be changed this morning, would hearts be changed, and will we leave this place not just being hearers of the Word, but doers also for the glory of Christ. And we pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.